My dearest Zadi, by the time you receive this letter, I will already be dead. I'm so sorry that I never came to you. If I had known three years ago that I would end up here, I would have never left you. My plan was to come back to you, not as a mere commoner, but as the Messiah's chief financial officer. What dreams I had for us. It all started out so well. The excitement of the Messiah's arrival, the crazy miracles, the tons of people. We were like rock stars in the beginning, and there was no doubt in my mind that we would soon have the Romans submitting to us. But then it all changed. Jesus started talking about dying at the hands of the Romans. Our leaders were calling him a heretic. And then in Nazareth, his power seemed to have been diminished. He could hardly do any miracles except heal a few sick people. And then came the zombie speech. That's what Thomas and I nicknamed it. We were surrounded by so many people who were ready to run into battle with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he started talking about we'd have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Are you kidding me? I mean, months earlier, he had started speaking in parables, not making a whole lot of sense. But this, drink your blood, eat your flesh, straight up crazy. It was the last straw. Everybody started leaving. Peter and all the guys, they couldn't see it. It was like they were brainwashed. And so I didn't know what to do. I'd wasted three years following this fake. Everything I had was wrapped up in this ministry. My best choice seemed to be just to stay on and see if I could recoup something and and not return to you empty-handed. So I started taking a little bit from the money bag and putting it away. Some may call it stealing, but from my perspective, I call it back wages. It's what I was owed. But during this whole time, I was so conflicted, especially when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That made no sense to me. How could Jehovah let this fake Messiah do miracles like this? And the way that he loved people, the way he loved us, his 12, it was so real. For months, I was back and forth. Is he the Messiah? No, he can't be the Messiah. I couldn't make up my mind until that moment at Martha's house when Mary brought out the alabaster jar. I saw my opportunity. I saw my way back home to you. This is going to be worth so much money. But instead of giving it to us, she washed him with it. She poured out her tears at his feet. I was so mad. I was livid. I left that house right then and there, and I went and found our leaders. And I told them right there, I want to sell him out. How much will you give me? And they committed 30 shekels of silver. That's plenty enough for me. Four months' wages, at least it's something. So from that point forward, I tried to find an opportunity to sell him out. Remember that night, we're eating that last supper, as they called it. And there he looked at me, and he said, I was the one the one that would betray him. So it was over. There was no turning back now. I went and found our leaders and I brought them to the place we always would pray, out in the garden. They came with swords and clubs. In that moment, I expected him to fight. I I expected him to own up to the fact that he was fake, but he didn't. One more last big healing right there in front of my eyes. I couldn't believe it. And they took him. They had to get people to falsely accuse him. They had to make up stories about him. I couldn't believe it. It was like all of a sudden my eyes were open. What had I done? He really was the Messiah. Wait a minute. What if what he wanted was not not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom where men's hearts bowed to him? It was in that moment I realized I can't go on. I have committed the ultimate treachery. I have disowned my master. I have sold out my friends. My love, I cannot go on living like this. I will no longer see you. Pray for me as my soul is eternally damned. Yours truly, Judas.
Iscariot. It's powerful. We're finishing up a series called The Way I Saw It. What we've been doing is looking through the eyes of some of those who interacted with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Today we're focusing on Judas Iscariot. Just his name alone has gone down in history as the greatest you know, sellout in the history of humanity. In all my years, I've never met a kid named Judas. Met a lot of Peters and Johns and other type of names. It's like his name is synonymous with great betrayal. In fact, we would say that you're a Judas if we felt like someone wounded us deeply and betrayed us. I would probably put his name in the list of those like an Adolf Hitler or, uh, you know, uh, you know, Marilyn Manson or even, you know, like a Benedict Arnold or something. None of us would probably name our child that just simply because of the ramifications of what he did some 2,000 years ago. We would know him as that great betrayer. But what if, what if there was more to it than that? Did Judas really plan his life to destroy Jesus? Was that his end plan? Was that his end goal to forever be called the great betrayer? Was that really who he committed to be? Or are there some other pieces that we can see through his eyes in this whole storyline? There's a couple definitive things that we know for sure. I, I took a little bit of artistic license in the monologue, and, and uh, there's nowhere in Scripture that it says he had a fiancé or a girlfriend that he was trying to get back to. There's none of that in there. But what we do know is some couple critical things. First off, he was a Jew. And he was a Jew that was actually from an area called Kariath or Kariath. The rest of the 12 were from Galilee. So they would have kind of had their own little way of interacting, kind of like from the same area. It's kind of like, you know, those of you that are, you know, maybe from Fort Worth versus those from Dallas. You got your little Fort Worth little swag thing going. You know, or those of you from Houston, H-Town, you know, you got your little deal going. Or, you know, you O-H-I-O from the uh, Ohio area. You got your little thing going. So he was from a different area. So it probably at first was a little bit more difficult to really find some of the, you know, the, the common ground with these other 12 guys. This we know. Another thing that we know about him is that Jesus handpicked him. So there were many people following Jesus, uh, upwards of probably 120 at any time, and then he would peel away with his disciples. But there's this moment where Jesus goes up on the mountain, he comes down, and he actually handpicks the disciples. We, he's already called many to him. He calls them at this moment, come follow me, come follow me. But then there's this moment after prayer where he comes down, and the, and, the, and the gospels record that he actually handpicks them. So you get this picture like a bunch of guys are standing around and he picks them. I'll take you and not you and okay, you and I mean, can you be in the guy like uh, you know, junior high all over again? You know, so you got, you got this moment and Jesus picked Judas. He picked him. He hand selected him from the midst of all of these other followers. So that put him in Jesus's inner circle. And it's really neat, Judas was in his inner circle. And then the other thing that we know about him as well is that um, he saw every, all the miracles that the other disciples. It's not like he was off in some back room doing finances or something and they were all out doing miracles and they come back and tell. He was right there in the middle of it. He saw the blind eyes open. He saw, he saw the leprosy, the pus coming out of the flesh all of a sudden completely heal up like baby skin. He saw it. He was there. Not only that, but there's a moment where Jesus sends out the 12 Two by two, and they go into the, into the city and the town, and they begin to work miracles. Judas worked miracles. He was a part of the inner circle. He was a part of the plan 
to transform the world. He was in the Messiah's internal connection. We also know about him that he was put in charge of the money. In those days, like today, a ministry would have income. People would give donations and things like that. And so someone had to take care of that income, and Judas was put in charge of taking care of that. So when people would give something, they'd put it in a money bag, and Judas was in charge of that. And we also know something about him, and that is that he had the same opportunity to make the same choices that all the other disciples made. And as we jump into this today, I think what we're going to find is that Judas was, it was less about him being predestined, quote, to destroy Jesus, and that was the plan of his heart, and more of a guy that along the way made some really bad choices that ultimately destroyed him. As we read through the passages of Scripture and the Gospels, what we find is Judas is right in the middle of it. In fact, there's not really anything definitive other than him being picked that transpires in the first kind of two years of ministry. He's right in it. He's one of the collective. He's right in there getting people healed, administering truth, following Jesus. And then there's this moment where everything shifts in John chapter 6. And let's look at that for just a moment. And John chapter 6 is kind of our key passage. I don't have a specific key scripture, but I have a key passage today. John chapter 6, and it's a number of verses. And if you would bear with me. I'd like to read them to you. If you don't have your Bible, they'll be on the screens. John chapter 6, verses 53, starting there, and then we'll move on into verses 66 and things like that. So what happens in the prior verses to 53, and that is uh, there, there's this, um, this moment where Jesus kind of brings all, all the disciples and people that are following seem to have been set down in Jesus's teaching. In verse 53, it says, and Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, and drink his blood. You have, no, uh, you have no life in you. That's where I got the zombie apocalypse concept right there. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 55. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So one, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And on hearing it, many of his disciples says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Am I offending you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. So you're following me, but you don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him? Mark that. He, who would betray it? The one who would betray him. Verse 65. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer fo- uh, followed him. Now, this, as Jesus is ministering this truth, it says that it throws the whole group into confusion. Because he starts using verbiage like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, you know, when you research this out, scholars hardly ever agree on anything. But this one piece they really agree on. Everyone sitting there should have a clear perspective that Jesus was talking figuratively. He wasn't talking specific about come eat my flesh. That he was talking and using an example. And the example that he was using, so much so that he connected it back to manna. 
And he said, listen, your forefathers, God gave them manna because they were dying out in, out in the wilderness. He says, and I am the bread of life. I am, what he's saying to them is, listen, you have to come to me and you have to give me your whole self. You have to eat of my doctrine. Whatever you believed in the past, whatever you live for, I have to become the Lord of your life. So much so that you get your substance from me. That you get your life from me. I am life. The bread of life. I am the bread of life. And never in the world would he have been serious about, or he would have been uh, specific about drinking blood. Jewish people do not drink blood. They would have never done that. It was considered a sin out of the book of Leviticus. They would have never touched it with a 10-foot pole. Surely the Messiah was not telling them to drink his own blood and eat his own flesh. He was using symbolism to say, you have to come to me completely committed to me. Eating the living bread means that you have to give me everything and believe in me that my atonement at my death will be the life that you need to continue on. Not a life, not a bread that won't sustain you after the fact, but a life or a breath that will continue to sustain you for all of eternity. This is what he's saying to them. And they should have gotten it easily. But because of the hardness of their heart, because see, what had happened was, over the years of all the prophecies, every Jewish boy and girl believed there was a Messiah coming. All the rabbis taught that there was a Messiah coming. And in this moment, it was a heightened political season, and it was a, a def- definitely a difficult season because the Romans had basically taken them over, had forced them to pay taxes to them. They didn't destroy them, but they allowed them to continue worshiping their God and their synagogues. But they put a bunch of rules and regulations. They couldn't do this. They couldn't do that. And as a result, they were frustrated about this. And there was constantly political undertones of rising up and overthrowing the government and things like that. So they believed that the Messiah would come and he would literally set up shops, set up a kingdom, raise up an army and destroy everyone. And he would have supernatural power where the army wouldn't even really have to fight. That he'd just wave his hand and all the Romans would die. They really believed this with all their heart. So now he's saying, I have to die and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I have to die that you may live. You have to come to me for your fullness of life. And that goes against everything that they perceived that the Messiah was supposed to be. And it's in this moment where Judas shifts. It's in this moment. Jesus even asks, so have I offended you? Have I offended you? And he goes on to explain, you've got to come to me for life. I love you. See, what Jesus is doing for two years, they've been rock stars, laying hands on people. They're getting healed, preaching. People are like, yes. But now he's like, okay, you really want to follow me? So let me take you to the next level. Either I am the Lord of your life or I'm not. I'm not your, just your little healer person. I'm not your little rock star person. I am God. Will you accept me as God and give me your complete trust? And in this, it says that many of them walked away. We can't do it. We can't do it. And in that moment, I believe, and you can see it in Scripture, that Judas' heart turned. He turned. He's like, this is not what it was supposed to be. I mean, from the very beginning, I believe that Judas thought, if he's the Messiah, and I'm over the finances, then I'm going to be the CFO of the greatest movement in the history of humanity. All the wealth of the earth is the Messiah's. I'm the finance officer, therefore it comes through my hands. This is the promotion of promotions. It would have been like buying Microsoft, Microsoft stock in the 1980s. I mean, you would be like ahead of the game. That's what he's thinking. And then in this moment, Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to die and you've got to eat my flesh. You've got to drink my blood. He's like, what? That is not what I signed up for. 
Can you imagine as he starts replaying all the months in his mind? Can you imagine the moment that he went, yes, I will follow you. And he left behind everything, family, friends, left his area of town, uh, where he grew up in. And now he's following this dude around for two years. And then he stops and he says, hey, all this stuff is cool, but they're actually going to kill me. No, they can't kill you. You're the Messiah. Yes, they will kill me because what I'm doing is causing you to come to me and eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he's like, uh-uh, no, sir, that's messed up. That's messed up. So he starts rethinking the whole plan. What have I done? Come on, you remember when you first got saved, how fun it was? Oh, it was exciting. Until you read in the Bible, love your enemies. I was all excited about Jesus until I found out I had to love my enemies. Like, love my enemies, they deserve to die. They're my enemy because they're bad, I'm good. I'm a Christian. Or when he says to give give honor to where honor is due, or where he says all authority has been set up by God, I'm like, that guy... He's wicked. You set him up, what's wrong with you? You're broken. And I had to learn to submit to imperfect people because that's what he taught. This is where he's at. He's at this conflict moment. And in this moment, let me tell you what happens to him. He gets discouraged. And I want to take you through what I see as a six-step process where Judas went from being, I mean, a lover of Jesus in the middle of revival with him to becoming the guy that we all cannot stand and would never use his name. It's one of the most hated men in the history of humanity. How did he get from there to here? And I believe it's a process. In fact, I believe that many Christians, if they're not careful, will start stepping down that process and look up one day and go, yeah, it's all fake. So let's start with the first piece that we see in this process. The first piece started right here in this John chapter 6 passage, and that is he became discouraged. Number one, discouragement set in. He got offended. Like how... How can this, I've, I've spent my whole life following, I've spent these last two years, excuse me, following you, believing that the Messiah was going to be someone great. Now you're talking about dying. You cannot die until we destroy the Romans. You cannot do anything but rule. What do you, what's wrong with you? How can you talk crazy stuff in parables and you won't just tell me straight out, what are you talking about? Why are you talking in parables? Are you crazy or something? Have you gone loco? I mean, what's the problem? He got discouraged. I don't know about you, but I've been, I've been saved long enough to have been discouraged by God. I've been in that place where I prayed for babies to live and they didn't. And he offended me. Like, why did you not heal my babies? Why did you not heal our lives? Why did you allow the person over me to be such a terrible person that they just about destroyed me and my wife? Why, God? I've been in that place before. And if you haven't been, hold on. Because at some point, the Bible says, when the day of evil comes, not if the day of evil comes. And that discouragement set into my life. I've had that. I was offended at God. I was offended at others, offended at the church. Been there. Meet those people all the time when I'm out ministering on the streets and stuff. All the time. He gets offended. He gets frustrated. He's discouraged. This is not what I signed up for. In fact, in John chapter 6 and verse 66, it makes this statement. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Notice John 6, 6, 6. In the last days, the mark of the beast is called 666. It's those who say, you know what? I don't believe he's really God. And know what? I don't really care. I'm going to take the mark because I don't really want to fight through the difficulty. He's prophesying about it in John chapter 6. There's no way they could have made that happen. We went back and tried to like, took, you know, took some type of, you know, Photoshop and mixed the verses and kind of get John 666. Supernatural. This happens in this moment. Jesus is literally, the Holy Scripture are literally pointing to us what it is to be a betrayer of the Father, 
of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is to turn our back and walk away. Six, six, six. He got discouraged. Discouragement set in. I don't know about you, but I've been discouraged. That's the first step in the process. Let's keep going. Here's the second step in the, in the process, and that is self-preservation. Again, we don't have this whole list of Judas did this, Judas did this. We only have a couple key passages to derive what this man was going through, what he was thinking, how he was looking. And so let's pick up in this key passage is, is, um, is John, chapter, um, John chapter 12 and verse 6. says that he was the keeper of the money bag. And he used to help himself to what was put in it. So he gets discouraged and he realizes, you know what, this is bunk. I mean, he says he's going to die, then what do I do? I don't have a job. If he dies, he's the head of the ministry. What do I do for a living now? Will I ever get married? How am I going to build a house? How am I going to eat? So you know what he said? I've got I've to take care of myself. So he starts taking the money out of the bag. He starts stealing it. Of course, he didn't consider it stealing. He's, I'm owed this. I'm in ministry. I mean, I don't get paid at all. I'm just following this dude around, man. It's awesome and it's cool and all, but I got nothing. So he starts taking from it. I can't tell you how many ministers that I've talked to that were caught stealing the church money and things like that, they thought they were owed it because of the sacrifices they had made. I'm owed it. It's self-preservation. I mean, how many times have you and I moved into self-preservation? You know, all throughout, all throughout commentaries, they call uh, him the, that, that the root of what was pushing Judas was greed. And, and maybe that is the case. But let me ask you something. Don't we all have a little bit of greed inside of us? I mean, when the televangelist says on, on Christian television, come to the Lord and be blessed. You have the, you have the great, you'll get a new car. You'll, you get to go to heaven. You'll have all these blessings. And, and again, I'm not knocking that, those preachers. But the problem with that doctrine is what happens when they're not blessed. See, we don't come to Jesus. See, they're appealing to the greediness in each and every one of us. Come and get something from God. But here's the problem. What happens when the get something from God dries up or it's not happening in that moment? See, I didn't come to Christ for what I could get from him. I came to Christ because he's God. He's the Lord. He's the Savior God Almighty. Whether I like what he says or not, it doesn't matter. I am what they call a believer. I believe in him. I've surrendered my life to him. This is genuine Christianity. But the appeal to the greed side is what many ministers have done. And, and, and again, it's created such a problem and a vacuum in Christianity that the moment that you're not blessed, you say, well, you said I was going to be blessed. I'm not blessed. I can't stand this. And I prayed and it didn't happen, so it's all fake. And they walk away. I can't tell you how many I've ministered to. Like, bro, I love you, but you came to Jesus to get something instead of give something. That is your life. He's God. You're not. So, well, I don't really believe that. Well, then you're not a believer. I am. That's separation between me and you. I'm a believer. He's God. I'll spend eternity with him. He is the Lord. He came. He died for my sins. I accepted that, and I follow him all my days. And his teachings are life to me. They are the bread. They are the source. Blood, bread, the life's flesh, the life source to me. His words are truth. He moves into this self-preservation mode. He starts taking the money. He starts trying to pull things in. And then we see this next stage in his process of going from the great co-minister with Christ amongst the 12 to being disappointed. Like, oh, really? Are you serious? How can this be? Man, I, might, I must be falling a fake to, you know what, I'm going to get mine while I can get mine. Because I don't know what else to do, but I'm going to get mine. To the next phase, we see him moving great disrespect or dishonor. We pick that up 
where we see him interacting in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and verse 6 is this moment we quoted it in the monologue where Mary comes. Now, Mary, they've cast seven demons out of this woman. Martha, it's in Martha's house. Mary and Martha's sisters, Lazarus, their brother. And she has this jar. She has this alabaster jar. And, you know, I love when Carrie Job sings, it's alabaster jar. It's all I have of worth. She sings it so sweet. But what happens is she takes what is a very valuable, she takes her savings account is what this is, and she busts it over him. And the oil and the perfume just flows down his body. She wipes his feet with it, her tears joining in. And Judas loses his mind. And I picture, like we said in the monologue, that he saw her bringing it out. He's like, yes, yes, this is the money. Now, this is a donation, partner. And then all of a sudden, she rips it open and pours it out. He's horrified. So he makes up some excuse like, we could, we could have given that to the poor people. When really what he was thinking was, and John qualifies it in, in his gospel, he really just wanted it for himself. And let's pick up Mark chapter, excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, Mark chapter 14, verse 6 through 11. And Jesus responds to Judas being ticked off about it. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll have with you always, and you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, pay attention, pay attention to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot took it to another level. One of the 12 went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand them over. She is giving full honor. She is preparing him, she didn't even know, supernaturally, prophetically, she is preparing him for his burial. He's going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to resurrect, and anytime your grandfather or somebody was dying, you would anoint them for their death. In Jewish culture. And so she takes the most valuable thing she has. Many scholars say that it was actually because she had been in some type of prostitution. It was the sum of all of her years that she was trying to get out of prostitution. That she would take this money and she would somehow start a business. And she had to start in this situation because she was broke. And, so, and that this was the sum of all of her efforts of depravity over the years to try to get to start a business. And she takes it and she pours it out. She just says, God, Jesus, you are God. And who I am, what I value, I pour over you. You are the most important thing in my life. And when he sees her love, her honor, and respect, he is overtaken with disrespect and dishonor and devalued the moment. It's beautiful and precious. How many times have you seen someone worshiping with all of their heart and you're like, yeah, I used to do that. Uh, You'll get there one day, buddy, when you find out half the pastors are fakes. When you find out the people who wrote those songs, they're not even really saved. And the guy playing that instrument up there, he was in a bar last night. He probably ain't even really sold out. That disrespect sets in, and he moves into that phase. And as he moves into that phase of disrespect, it overtakes him. And he goes out, and he plots the betrayal of Jesus. And then the next moment that we see him is at the Last Supper, which is what I'm calling the fourth stage in his demise 
and that is his hypocrisy. His hypocrisy. In this fourth stage, he's at the Last Supper, if you will. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all go, what? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And he's standing there, is it me? Let me tell you how good of a hypocrite he is. He's been running around with them for months after he's already plotted to betray Jesus, and they don't know it. Now look, these dudes, they are on the road together. They're living in tents together. They're staying in people's houses. Come on, you ever been a roadie group? I mean, they are, they are loading in and loading out the sound equipment together. They know each other. One does not tear their britches without the other one. Somebody knowing because they are doing life together every day. They, 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 they sleep in the same buildings. They go to the same hotels together. They eat the same food. And they don't know that he's the one. You say, how do you know that they don't know? Because let me tell you something right now. If Peter knew that Judas was the one, he'd be like, that's the one! try to cut his ear off. Let me tell you, the Bible says that John was his beloved. He was, now, maybe some of you don't know this. I've taught this in years past, and you probably weren't here at the time. But all of the disciples, with the exception of Peter, are all under the age of 20. They are. I can prove it to you, but we don't have time today. So Peter is over 20. The rest of them are all teenagers, young adults. In fact, John is believed to be around the age of 13 or 14. He's the youngest, so Jesus is like his dad. And so every time we see him interacting with Jesus around the table, he's got his head on his chest. I mean, Jesus is like special attention for That's why he's called the beloved, probably because he's the youngest. Let me tell you something right now. If John knew that Judas had went and started plotting to betray Jesus, he'd be like, oh, uh-uh. Oh, no, you do not to my daddy. No, you, come on, let's go, let's go. I mean, he would have got in it. But that doesn't happen. That's how hypocritical he is. How many people have I met that have grown up around the church but don't know God? How many people do I know have played on the stage and led worship, but they are so disrespectful and they don't treat him as the Lord that he is. They know the systems to make church work and try to get churches to grow and pull on the emotions of the people as they lead worship, but they're full of wickedness, come on someone, and full of betrayal in their heart because they got offended, they got disenfranchised early on through some situation that happened, then they moved into, I'm going to take care of myself, self-preservation, and that self-preservation turned into disrespect and dishonor, and then now all of a sudden you find them in this situation of being hypocritical and they don't even know how they became it. I've ministered to those pastors and ministers many times over my years. You're just three or four steps from hypocrisy because you've been around the church so much, but you haven't surrendered yourself to him. And then as they're sitting there, he goes, yep, it's going to be one of y'all. Whoever takes this bread, then I'm going to... Here, Judas. <laughs> he gonna walk and he goes and does the deal, man. And then they're in the garden praying, and he comes, and he gets them. And then, as we kind of illustrated in the monologue, the only thing we know is the Word of God says, once he was condemned, Judas had an epiphany. O-M-J. He was the real one. And then the next phase that sets in, and the last and final, is Depression. The Bible says he was deeply sorrowful, or remorse is what one version says. Remorse gripped him. Depression overtook him in that moment. Overtook him. 
And then he goes out and he hangs himself. That's what the book of Mark says. Acts chapter 1 says that he fell off the side of a cliff face first and his gut splattered out. So the way scholars communicate that is that they don't disagree with each other. The hill that Judas hung himself on, more than likely the branch, there's not a whole lot of trees and surely not a whole lot of big trees to hang yourself from. That the branch that he tied the rope to probably broke halfway into his death, already past his death, and he fell further down the cliff and his body exploded on the rocks. He commits suicide. This guy, who was one of the 12, the hand-picked, the one who, I believe the whole time, Jesus had plans to restore the greediness in his heart. I believe that Jesus worked day in and day out to love him like he loved the rest of them. There's a difference between him and the other ones, and that is he made different decisions in the tough moments. And I believe with all of my heart, if Judas was standing here today, through his eyes, the way he saw it, he would teach us three principles. And I want you to write these down right now for where you and I are at in our Christian walk. Three things I think he would tell us. Number one, I think he would tell us this. Don't let your disappointment define your destiny. Don't let your disappointment define your destiny. Let me tell you something. He had a moment where he was deeply disappointed but he, did, but he let it define his destiny. Do you understand? In that passage of scripture where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, one of the other gospels records this moment. And Jesus looks at him and says, will you too leave me? Because everybody's leaving. And Peter steps up and says, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. Peter says, listen, I'm disappointed and this is crazy. But where else am I going to go? I have surrendered myself to you, and you have the words of life. Judas, on the other hand, moved straight into hypocrisy and was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to say nothing. He had a choice in that moment to look at his disappointment and say, you know what? I don't understand it. I don't know why Jesus let my baby stop. I don't know why my wife left me for another man. I don't know why the last church did this to me. Or when I pulled in the parking lot of this church, that person was rude. Or my coffee didn't taste well. Or they didn't treat my kid well back in the back at church. But I know this. You alone have the words of life. You alone. Where else am I going to go? You love me when no one else loves me. You'll be there for me when no one else will be there. I'm with you. Friend, there's got to come a moment where you make a decision. I'm with Jesus come hell or high waters I'm with Jesus whether I like it or don't like it whether his teachings make me feel good or make me feel bad I don't care he's the one I'm following him all my days and whatever disappointment happens it will not define me my destiny is in him and him alone Judas didn't do that he's like what you got to be kidding me I've wasted my life and he would stand here right now and he'd tell you don't let your disappointment define your destiny don't you do it Here's the second thing I think he would tell us, and that is self-preservation is actually found in selflessness. You really want to save your life? Give it to another. Self-preservation, it's not in you doing what you can do to protect yourself. Self-preservation is what Jesus said. I did not come to be served, but to serve and lay my life down as a ransom for many. What Jesus does is he flips the script. He redefines the formula. See, our whole lives, we have lived to be better than everybody else. If we get the best scores, we'll get the best scholarships. If we do better than everybody else at our job, we'll get the promotion. If we really work harder than everybody else, then what will happen is we will actually, we will actually go, go further and be richer 
richer than everybody else. And Jesus flips the whole formula and he says, no, 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 no. You wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom? Serve. The greatest is the servant of all. And so Judas, in this moment of self-preservation, he stops serving, he stops caring, he starts stealing what's he trying to get his own. And if he was standing here today, he would tell you, you know how you really preserve yourself? Be selfless. Lay down your life. Lay down your life like Christ laid down his. That's what he would tell us. In a moment of hardship, you know the first thing we do? We start cultivating all of our little stuff. You can't take this from me now. You can't have this. It's amazing. Some of you have been through such hardship, and you're sitting out in this congregation. You should have been on this stage today as small group leaders. But you went through something, and it's difficult. You get disappointed. And what you've done is you've circled the wagons, and you say, look, I can't. I've got this going. i got this going, and that's all I can do. And as a result, you're not serving anyone. You're not helping anyone else. And guess what's happening? You're actually destroying yourself. The actual self-preservation happens in his kingdom when we lay down our life. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then he'll add everything else to you. And so we, we don't get that because the principle that we live under in this world and this horrible world that we live in is you've got to fight, dog eat dog, you've got to outdo the next guy, you've got to work harder than everybody else. And Jesus said, no, no, listen, seek first the kingdom. Your father knows you need houses and homes and money. Seek first the kingdom. And somehow in the midst of that servanthood and that selflessness, he's going to do miracles that blow your mind. I think about, man, I think about Ricky Moffat. Brother Ricky and his company's reworking, you know, the front of our, front of the, uh, in the, in the foyer area, our small group commons. They've been here all week working so hard. And I'm always interacting with God is blessing his business. Let me tell you something. I watch Brother Ricky. He always gives things away. He's always blessing others. He's always being the servant of all. He never comes in and tries to be dogmatic. He's never saying, well, you didn't give me this, so I'm not going to give you that. He's gotten the principle of heaven down. And if Judas was standing here, we'd say, I missed it. I missed the formula. I got it backwards. I thought protecting what was mine was going to save it all, but just the opposite, it destroyed me. So real self-preservation is to be selfless. Here's the third thing that I think he would teach us, and that is this. In remorse, run to Jesus, not away from Jesus. Now let me help you picture something now. Judas betrayed Jesus, yes? Everybody say yes. Say it again. Judas betrayed Jesus, yes? Say yes. But there was this other dude named Peter. He denied him three times. I mean, really, on the vast scale of things, they're both rejection of Jesus. In fact, in fact we don't even hear Judas doing this, but, but Peter gets so ticked off about it, he starts cussing. Blankety blank, I, I don't know him. Like, oh, okay, all right, sure. But yet, Peter ends up being this amazing man of God. Whereas this man committed suicide because of the depression and remorse of his sinfulness. And the reason that is, is because I'm convinced with all of my heart. If in the moment he realized, I have sold out innocent blood. I, 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 have, I was wrong. I'm convinced with all my heart. If he'd have went running to the foot of the cross and Jesus is there breathing his last breath. He said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm convinced with all my heart that Jesus would have looked down and said, I forgive you. I'm convinced of that. 
but he didn't. He went out and killed himself. On the other hand, what did Peter do? Peter denied him three times, just like Jesus prophesied that he would do when he said, I won't do it. Peter was an idiot, just like, just like Judas was. And in that moment where Judas went out and killed himself, Peter just went back to his old way of living. And I guarantee you, he was thinking, you know what? I blew it. You know what? I'm ashamed of it. But if Jesus, if he shows back, if he does what he said he was going to do, that in three days he would rise again, then when I see him, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, he's going to help me. I'm running to him. And in that moment, he's out fishing, and Jesus is on the bank, and someone says, it's Jesus. He's back alive. And Peter says, forget you jokers. He throws off his coat, and he starts swimming, and he goes all the way. He gets to Jesus. Jesus says, take a walk with me. Do you love me? I love you, and I'm so sorry. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? I love you. I love you so much. He does it three times. Why? Because three times he failed the Lord, and three times Jesus reinstated him so that every one of those failures are covered with love. Every one of those shortcomings are covered with love. He'd have done the same thing with Judas. But instead of running to Jesus, he ran away from Jesus. And some of you have a bad habit. The moment that some, your marriage ain't going right, the moment as a small group leader you make some mistake, go look at porn, you run away, you try to hide it, and you start becoming hypocritical. And let me tell you something, you're on that whole process. And you got to get out of that process. Lest you and I become those people. Have you ever met those people? Some of the most worthless, wicked, horrible people I've ever interacted with are backslidden Christians. Marilyn Manson went to Christian school. Vile, God-hater. Why? Because he got disappointed. Stay with me. Somebody did him dirty. He tells the story how they did him dirty at the Christian school. All the kids talked bad about him, and the teachers didn't didn't like him because he listened to crazy music. He went right down these steps, right down this process to where he's now just one of the most vile. Just, and as he gets older, the makeup don't look as It's amazing. It's unbelievable. And I'll tell you something. Are we really that far away from Judas? I mean, don't you and I have a little bit of greed still left in our heart? I'll tell you right now. I'm always thinking about Adam McCain first. I have to constantly repent of that. I'm, you know, not so long ago we were on an airplane and I was sitting in the exit row and you know, there's all these people, and they've been rude getting on. People were just mean and frustrated. I'm tired. And, they, you know, this one lady's got three or four little kids she's not taken care of, and this four-year-old's being an idiot. And I'm sitting there, and they go, you know, you're in the exit row. But do you promise to open the doors and take care of everybody? I was like, yes. And I'm looking at that exit door, and I'm looking at all these other people, and I, th- and I thought to myself, I'm going to tell you right now, one person's getting off this plane. <laughs> the rest of y'all, y'all are dead. You are dead. I'm not helping any of you suckers. Come on, greed, selfish, self-preservation. Come on now. I'm surely not going to help you. You deserve what you get. You don't even discipline your kids. See, you don't deserve to go to heaven. And I'm looking around, you know, like, look, you don't, you're only two weeks from heaven anyway, so there ain't no reason to help you. You're on the short, you're on the long list, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm serious. I felt that, and then the Lord smacked me upside the head. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, taking care of myself. Church on the hill needs me. I can't die. I have to get off. We all have a little bit of that left. How far away from me are we from being like a Judas? Turning our back on him because it didn't go the way we thought it should go. Friend, I don't know about you, but I want to make it to the end. And I'm just dumb enough to be like Peter. I'm an idiot. Hell. And he responds to that. Would you stand with me all across the room? The way Judas saw it. And what we can learn. I hope that's helped you today. I want to minister to you for just a moment. I want you to close your eyes with me. And I get you to do that and bow your heads. I told the first service, we don't have any little elves that come around and steal stuff out of your purse that's under the chair. But we do that so you can concentrate. 
so that it gets you to close your eyes and bow your head so God can speak to you. If you're as ADD as I am, I start, you know, I start thinking why Jamal has red pants on and only a cool black dude could wear red pants, you know. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I'm like, man, white people can't look that good. So I want you to close your eyes with me and let's let the Lord minister to us for just a moment. Maybe, and I think if Judas was here, he would tell us that first piece, don't let that disappointment define your destiny. Listen, I, I don't disagree that some of you have been disappointed by me, by other Christians, by the church, by God. I don't doubt that one bit. I've been disappointed. I've been disappointed by you. I've been disappointed about me. I've been disappointed by the Lord. But may we not let that disappointment define our destiny. May we lay our lives down and put a full trust in Him. So as you stand here today, if you've been disappointed and you keep carrying that, I just want you to know you're in a process you've got to get out of because it won't stop with disappointment. It won't stop until you get to the place of disrespect and dishonor. It won't stop till you get to the place of being hypocritical. And it won't stop until you get to the place of dead. We've got to interrupt that process now. Maybe you've been disappointed because you thought God was going to do this one thing. And here you are 30 years old and it didn't happen. And you're comparing the time that you've been alive to what dream you thought God gave you. Or prophecy that was over your life. Friend, you've got to let go of the disappointment. And love today and love Jesus right here, right now. Maybe you thought by now you would be making millions of dollars and you've been cheated out of it from one bad business deal after another. Friend, you've got to let go of the disappointment. He's got you in the palm of his hand. You're his son. You're his daughter. Maybe you thought by now you would be leading a ministry and you're still, you're still working at Walmart or some job that you thought you'd never be working. Friend, you've got to let go of the disappointment. It starts a process that you don't want to be in. How do you get a Judas who changes the world with the other disciples in Jesus to a Judas who betrays the King of glory? It was a process. Father, I pray for men and women in this room who've been disappointed. We've all been disappointed. We've all been let down by people, by pastors, by ourselves, and even our expectation of what we thought you would do, Jesus. And today, come on, every head bowed, every eye closed. If this represents you, you need to pray. And you just need to admit it. Say, Lord, I've been disappointed. I want to let it go right here. Maybe you thought your marriage would look better. Maybe you thought your relationship with your kids would be different. Let go of the disappointment. Because only in letting go of the disappointment can you begin to hear the truth. If, if Judas would have went to, to Jesus and said, Look, how can you say this? Jesus would have explained it to him. He would have had revelation. But he held his disappointment in private. And like a cancer, it ate him up on the inside. The second thing that Judas would have told us, he would have called out to us and he would have said very clearly, listen to me guys, you've got to get rid of the self-preservation and start loving others. Maybe you've been in self-preservation mode. It's been hard for you to tithe or give to other people who are hurting. Maybe you've had a hard time opening up your heart and your life to others because the last people you let into your life, they did you dirty. Friend, let me tell you something, that self-preservation is keeping you from life. So many people who have no need of your love, what you've been through, what you've experienced. God wants to move through you and through your pain to help others. Right now, you need to lay down that whole, I'm only going to take care of mine and start paying it forward in some other people's lives. Start caring for some other folks, opening up your heart. Father, I pray for those that are in that situation right now. 
Lord God, they've moved into, well, take care of my own. It's my money. I worked hard for it. It's my car. It's my house, my time, my kids. Lord, I pray you begin to deliver us from that, Lord. And then that third area is remorse because of sin. And I want to give a call to people in this room today that say, Pastor, I've got to be honest. I'm not a Christian. I feel the guilt of that. I feel the frustration of that. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would begin to move over their heart. Lord, those who feel as though they can't come to you and they keep running away from you. Lord, they've never fully committed themselves to you. They're not a real Christian. In fact, they're not sure if they die today if they go to heaven. Lord, would you here and now draw them to yourself? Jesus, you said unless the Father draw them, they cannot belong to you. Draw them, Holy Spirit. Father God, draw them. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're not a Christian, you're away from God, you've never been a Christian, or maybe you used to be and you've walked away, I'd like to call you back to the Father. I'd like to minister to you. I'd like to see you, quote, saved today. Say, well, what do I have to do? The Bible's real clear. It says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. The word says that he'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So you're in a good situation today. God's not mad at you. He's not angry at you. He just wants your heart. He wants opportunity to love you. And so today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, say, Pastor, you're talking to me. I'm not a Christian. I'm away from God. I want to come home. Here in just a moment, I'm going to get you to lift your hand so I can pray with you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not looking to embarrass you or highlight you or point you out. I just know that if you don't make a definitive decision, he was in a moment, Judas was in a moment where he could have made a decision and said, you know what? I don't get it all. I'm offended. I'm hurt about it. But you're still God, and I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. And I'm asking you for that opportunity here with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're not a Christian, you're ready to become one. You're ready to ask Jesus into your life. And you want me to pray with you right where you sit. I want you to lift your hand and say, that's me, Pastor. Pray for me across the room. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am, for your honesty. Anybody else? Just give you a couple more seconds. Anyone else? Pray for me, Pastor. It's time. Thank you, sweet love. You can put it back down. Uh, two, three more seconds. Don't miss. Don't push the Lord away. Don't think, well, another time or another moment. This is it. The Bible says, while the day is now, respond to him. While he's knocking at the door of your heart, open it up. Anyone else? God bless you, bro. Anybody else? Amen. You can put your hands down. Now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer because the word says confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance. I don't think there's anything magical about the words. I think what's supernatural is you lifted your hand and said, I want God. I want God. I want you, God. And this is a private, deep, private decision that you're making right where you stand. I want you to pray this with all of your heart. In fact, I'm going to get everyone in the audience to pray it out loud so you're not alone. Say it like this. Say, Jesus, today... I admit I'm a sinner. And I ask you now to forgive me of my sins. I accept what you did on the cross for me. Forgiveness of my sins. Thank you, Jesus. Here and now, I declare Jesus is my Lord. Write my name in your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I promise to serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. Father, I pray for every man and woman who lifted their hand. Lord, I pray right now they would feel your peace. They don't have to perform for you. They don't have to give money to the church to be right with you. They simply ask and they receive according to your word. Lord, I thank you that you've covered them with your grace and your mercy. And Lord, when the, th- the thoughts, the lies hit them later today, maybe in the next week, you didn't really mean that. You don't really want to serve God. Lord, that they'll be able to say, no, 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 no. Listen, let me tell you something. I rebuke that thought. I'm going to do my best to serve God, but he's going to do his best 
to transform my life. And God never fails. And so, Lord, I thank you for transformative uh, interactions with you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them in the night. I pray, Lord God, that you would cover, get them with good, solid Christian friends, Lord God, that can say, look, hey, let, let me show you what I learned. And Lord, I pray that the word would come alive to each and every one of them. We thank you for your kindness in Jesus' name. And everybody shouted amen and amen.